0: Hello and welcome to Mount Vigil. I'm Anthony. And I'm Blaine. This is our third of three episodes on the church, and we're nearing the end of our Story of God series. Today we want to talk a bit more about our personal relationship and experience of the church. By way of review, we've mostly talked about the main scriptural images for the church, church's house of God or temple, church's household of God or family, church's bride of Christ, church as the body of Christ, and the church as a new nation or race or people. Did I miss anything from that hasty review?
1: Well, Almost certainly, but that sounded good to me.
0: Yeah, cool. Uh, before we go on, we wanted to remind you that Mount Vigil is a nonprofit, and we definitely appreciate your support if you feel led to... Donate, you can go to mountvigil.org slash donate. Also, we have a very nice newsletter. Typically, Blaine writes it. It's beautiful because Blaine writes it, and it's at mountvigil.org slash subscribe.
1: Yeah. It's a good thing that we know the research indicates leaders under-communicate by about 10%, right? And so... (laughs) Our friends need to be reminded that this is a crowd-funded project probably every time. And eventually, you and I are going to be so comfortable. I'm going to be so comfortable just throwing that in as a reminder uh, because people do need to know where the needs are. And so, I'm just saying we're going to get really good at telling people that Mount Vigil exists because they or some of their friends have... Sometimes donated to Mount Vigil, allowing us to own the sound equipment that's in this basement right now and pay the sound guy and get the books and do the things. So, thank you to our friends who make this podcast happen.
0: It's good. So, let's kick this conversation off with a question for you, Blaine. What is your, what's the nutshell of your story, the story of your life with the church? Oh my gosh. You did not warn me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. We're moving from theory to praxis, theory to personal experience. What's your What's your life with the church been like? That's good. You
1: know, I was actually, I, just, I was recently in Simon Sinek land, which is a place I visit on occasion.
0: And Starting was, with why.
1: Yeah. And I actually think one of the most brilliant sections of that book is when he articulates the differences between... The why and the how, and just how radically nuanced and distinct those two conversations are. Because we've been having why, the glorious vision of God's United People. And it just, to me at least, always feels like a sudden right turn to go into the, to begin to talk about the place that you show up tomorrow Mm -hmm. and to get into the actual how. So when I left home, At 18, I had a paradigm that had many advantages and many shortfalls. And I'm really grateful that the articulation of the gospel that I grew up with was really good. Um, It was accurate, it was inspiring, and it nailed the why of life in the kingdom with God, the long-expected reign of God available in Christ, and it nailed the drama. One double-edged sword is that I primarily understood myself in terms of difference, degrees of difference from the church. So when I finally began studying rhetoric in college, I almost laughed it out loud when we were studying this thing called like, the common topoi which just means the common locations, where do people go to have conversations in terms of their own mind? And one of the main places that people go is uh, like compare and contrast, expressing something in terms of difference to a dominant narrative. The upshot of that is that that's like a superpower. So if you've ever been around, for example, Hawaiian culture, Uh, One of the superpowers of that culture as a subset of American culture is that it asserts itself as an alternative, which is kind of true and kind of not true, to mainstream American culture. But it gives an amazing level of coherence and direction to people who live on white. Well, that was kind of my relationship with what I would just always call the church. And it wasn't expressed... It wasn't the church across time and space. It was the, uh, the late modern American megachurch. It was the Reformed gospel in particular that I like most often had in mind. Those two things. And I was not that, which gave me a lot of energy in the direction of an individual life with God, private prayer, facilitating direct experiences with God. There are so many fascinating pieces of that. One element of that operating system was that up until very recently, I remained convinced that it was the direct experience of God that changes people, which I still think is true. (laughs) There's just a giant, there's a sun-sized asterisk next to that, which is that The direct experience of God is mediated and experienced in the life form of Jesus, which is a whole thing. So, I never, almost never, attended a local gathering. And this was, you know, I went to various Christian universities, so this was always like a a point of conflict with peers and roommates who just said, Why do you not go? (laughs) And fortunately, unfortunately, I got really good at having that conversation, at answering that objection. You know, when it finally started to change was when I had a roommate who didn't ask, why don't you go? He started asking, will you come with me? Mm. And that, I cannot tell you the extent... To which that began to shift the territory. I didn't actually end up gathering with those people in the long term, but it was like one degree back in the direction of reconciling with the church as a vital part of God's plan. And I'll say, for I end my l- long monologue of sort of season one, what really began to shift the territory of my relationship with the local gathering, God's heart for the local church, was was hospitality. It was rolling mm. into the house of, you know, the, the pastor's family who lived in a rougher neighborhood, uh, kind of, you know, on the south side of town where I was in Spokane, Washington. And it was sitting at their table and watching the quality of their life and Truly, I had never seen anything like it, where they were shouting out the window to their neighbors, <laughs> hey, have you had dinner? Do you want to come in? And people were coming in and out of the kitchen. And then when a meal finally went on the table, it, I, and I, assuming I was there for a night when there was a shared meal, people would just go around and respond to... Why are you following Jesus right now? How is the gospel good news to you? Why does, it, why does it sound like good news? Where is God meeting you? And that community had a really high value on the discipline of confession, which I also hadn't experienced before of just leading out of weakness, which to the present day is an underdeveloped skill for me. So it was so appealing to watch people who are really good not just out of leading, out of their gifting, but of foregrounding their need uh, and using that as a vehicle for the transformation of a people, it, it blew my hair back uh, to get one imperfect and beautiful picture of what a life that was pointed in the direction of faithfulness to Christ as a community could look like because I just hadn't seen it before. And... With the disposition that I have, when they started giving me books to read, I just devoured them where it went. I wanted to understand what I was seeing, and because they actually had been doing it for 20 years and had done a lot of the work to have answers for people like me who needed the theology to interpret the experience, they were like, "Read. what question are you asking? Okay, you might find this book helpful. Like, you need experiences that interpret the information that you have, but you do need the information. So, that really, it's not like that began. I would say the decisive moment of my conversion to the local gathering as an indispensable part of the way of Jesus happened with Stephen Jamie Hart. In the off chance that you listen to this podcast, I love you guys so much. Thank you. You guys changed my life. Anthony, would you get us to the moment of conversion rather than, because I could go from there through Canadian Anglicans and a few other permutations, but I'd just love to hear what was the road to the decisive shift in your relationship with the local church? Mm.
0: I loved hearing that summary of your story and that it ended with a personal shout out. I feel like It matches quite well, kind of the Pauline model of these high-level sweeping statements and perspective, and then always ends with speaking to specific people, and we can learn something from that form. It's beautiful. Uh, My conversion to the church. I think, first of all, that's helpful language. Um, It might be helpful for you, listener, in your own story with the church that there's being converted to Jesus, converted to the gospel, and there's been converted to the church and i believe often there's separate things i grew up in a huge variety of expressions of the church but the common denominators were that they were charismatic and they were and these are not the same thing highly relationally and emotionally unwell and so uh, by the time that i got to to college that relationship with the church um, including in my own family where my dad, for a, a significant season of my teenage life, was a pastor of a church, though he shouldn't have been. He was very unqualified, and it was quite terrible in so many ways. Um, I was pretty angry about the church, and I wasn't aware of it until I left the house and went and moved to college and just started getting a different perspective on my whole life. And I was full of bitterness, unforgiveness, uh, pride— and so on, regarding the church. The beginning of my conversion back to, well, to like loving the church, seeing her as the bride, having respect for how God chooses to, sh- chooses to show up on the planet, um, all the things, forgiveness and healing, began with a professor at the college I went to named Dr. Bulger, a man I am deeply indebted to, like more than I often am aware of or often remember, uh, riffing on the SNL, dub bears thing. We called them dub bulge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I accidentally got like a minor in religion and philosophy because I just started taking classes on those subjects uh, out of interest and um, his classes, giving surveys of the Old Testament, Genesis deep dives. Um, it's kind of my first taste of something that you might get from a Bible project or a Ray Vanderlaan now. He's an amazing teacher, and he taught this class called Christian Worship, I think it was, where he introduced me to a theology of church, a theology of the gathering, new forms of gathering, like uh, liturgical uh, forms, uh, the, the the invitation to host and participate in things like... Uh, Ash Wednesday and Lent and some of the more neglected parts of the of the calendar in the at least in much of the western church and he introduced me to the beauty of communion which prior to that class was really just like a once a quarter random thing that happened at church often associated with budgetary meetings and it just kind of like uh, this this extra thing that we sometimes did for no uh, apparent reason, except you are supposed to make yourself feel as guilty as possible. So I grew up having actually a pretty deep um, head knowledge of the scriptures uh, in a way that I knew just enough to um, have arguments and feel like I was superior to the adults around me and uh, to feel pride and things like that. But I didn't know Jesus really, and I didn't know the gospel in very significant ways. And I really had no context for, for what church was about. It was just, we're Christians and this is what we do. And people that don't go to church are sort of living poorly or, or bad or whatever it was. Um, so the story started becoming a story and started clicking together in more significant ways in college. Um, I actually carried a, that big chip on my shoulder, though, um, well beyond college. And the, the day when. Like, my, um, I, I equate my conversion to the church with uh, a repentance. And several years ago, like, early on into my marriage, so—no, before my marriage, so about 15, 16 years ago, there was this worship retreat up here in the mountains, up in the mountain town, and uh, I call it, like, the Christian Woodstock. It was just a bunch of hippie-ish Christians worshiping and teaching spontaneously and, and so on. Anyways, th- that gathering, uh, that community, is sort of the origin story of our church. Now, though, it's very different in many ways as well. So, anyways, at uh, in this field on the mountains, uh, our friend Tim Thornton gave what happened to be his very first teaching, and he he I, f- I forget what biblical passage he was teaching out of, but the thesis was. The the church is the bride of Christ, and we and Jesus is jealous for His bride, and we should love her and seek to build her up, and we should repent of showing up in every expression of the bride and nitpicking and looking for everything that's wrong and tearing her down and criticizing her. And ouch! Yeah, it was a major ouch. I was the one that was always angry after we went to some church on on, on a Sunday, um, and Christi- Christina, my wife, was always. Trying to calm me down because I would just start (laughs) ranting, Um, but both of us looked at each other with wide eyes and we were like, "Oh my gosh!" This the spirit was just on this teaching and bringing righteous conviction. And afterwards, as in so many of our teachings, the 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 call to action, the the call to response was, "Hey, if this is you, come repent." Like the best reaction to a good teaching is repentance of some kind and receiving something better. So we ran forward, got prayed for, confessed and repented. And I think. There's so much to say about being converted to the church, like way more than we had time for. Way more stories, especially regarding the church that we're in now and the people and the stories. But the main thing I'll say right now is that confession, repentance, forgiveness uh, regarding the church was the most critical step in being able to enter into this journey that has been forming me for the last, uh, specifically for the last 15 years or so that has brought us to this day and is just so core, so essential to my family's wellness, my family's like very life. I'm, I'm flooded with, I'm flooded with like the emotion and the stories and the details. Uh, so I'm just going to stop there.
1: That's such a good story. Calling back Christian Woodstock is so perfect. All right, I'm going to take the next part of the story, which I will call, we're going to do this in threes as a nod to the Bible. Aristotelian dramatism
0: mm. <laughs> or the Bible.
1: Uh, all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end, or in my case, a beginning, a middle, and more middle. But I often joke to other parents that parenting is a professional sport played by amateurs <laughs> and you learn to be a parent. On the field. There's really no other way. And if you're me, you learn the questions of parenting through the pain, Uh, through just being confronted with how difficult it is to coach and direct and parent the will of a free creature who happens to be like nine months old or some such thing. So the amazing thing is that parenting is still God's preferred strategy of building parents. And it's the exception to the rule that God takes people who have already been equipped and drops them into the role for which they're prepared, because it's the very nature of equipping to happen on the way. A friend of mine who is, as you all know, one of my church planting man crushes, who, coincidentally, was mentored by one of my other church-planting man crushes. So, in order, David Echada and Jeff Vanderstel. Well, one of Jeff Vanderstel's big observations was that churches, in his context, when he was kind of building the SOMA decentralized church network, had conflated teaching and equipping. And what he wanted to point out was teaching is vital. Teaching is about architecting paradigms and conveying information and imparting a worldview. But you learn it and you learn to embody it when you try. And that's where the equipping happens. It's on, the kingdom of God is about on-the-job training. So my church experience, I get this glorious vision that I actually, it's still very important to me in my time in Spokane. But here's the funny thing. I never had to do it at that church. I was essentially uh, an inspired tourist. Mm. And I did not know then that unrealistic expectations are the danger that they are. I had not read Bonhoeffer. I did not know that the church was not Jesus. It was people who needed Jesus. And so, I see something that looks really beautiful and it had really clear sayings and good architecture that you could copy paste like change equals gospel plus safety plus time that's <laughs> that's a great saying and it's a, it's another thing entirely to show up tomorrow and create a safe environment you know gospel fluency being the ability to articulate and then read your own story in terms of the gospel of Jesus is a wonderful thing it's a whole other thing to learn to do that So, when my wife and I left Washington, I very much began my nitpicking phase, my swift disillusionment. You know, we rolled through a Pentecostal church, which was a thing that I had gone to Pentecostal conferences, but I had never gathered with a Pentecostal church for any kind of length. And there's a difference between those (laughs) two things. So... Uh, largely on my leadership, we stopped and we were looking for something that had a theological framework that we preferred. We ended up at an Anglican church that is actually a, a wonderful place, making disciples of Jesus. When we started gathering in kind of one of their community groups, we were so aggravated by what really could be interpreted as just the youth of that gathering, mm. which we did not have the maturity to read. That, like, we did not know that in the first couple years of a body forming, a community learning to articulate itself, it's weird. It's like the stock market, the daily is radically up and down. And on any given day, if you roll into a very young gathering, you just don't know what they're going to be trying. What discipleship tool the leader, in later years me, is going to have run across and become enamored with and try to implement? I just
0: read this book. Let's try this.
1: Exactly. And for the record, folks, I love older teachers commenting on younger phases, like Ronald Rolheiser commenting on adolescence uh, because of the lack of judgment and the humility that an experienced apprentice of Jesus is able to carry themselves with. So... What I would say if I could coach 10 years ago Blaine, would be, that's really normal. (laughs) What you really need to work on is your pride. What you really need to work on is how aggravated you are and begin asking the questions of why you're so mad. If you start asking that question now, you'll actually be ahead in a few years. But just so you know, that gathering is right on time. That's what they look like in the beginning. Um, Part of my problem was I had only seen a house gathering that was 20 years old and was led by the pastor and his wife. And it had a certain maturity to it that I assumed was normal or had no idea like of how to name. And so everything that was not that was failure. And I remember I was doing the dishes after this one church gathering, and I was kind of talking about what Jesus was up to in my life. And the leader of that group gave this big sigh and went, man, you talk about Jesus like you know him. And I was dead there. And I went over and looked and was like, tell me more. What do you mean? Why are you following Jesus? And This guy, in his story, he was actually a fairly recent convert out of being a witch. And (laughs) in the way that can happen when someone encounters the freedom of Jesus, he had gone full Monty and he was going for it. (laughs) And he was in seminary. He was going to be a leader. He was serving this church. And he was a really good man, actually, who was young, like I was, actually, in working out some dimensions of his salvation. Well... We got to the point with that gathering that we were so bewildered for so many reasons. My wife would just be in tears as we were on our way to go to kind of the small group time. And I remember the night that I pulled up in front and she was crying kind of so hard in the passenger seat about the prospect of going in to try to work out church life that threw the car back into drive, kept going, and that was putting the car into drive that night was how we left that gathering. Again, if you could have told older Blaine, or if older Blaine could have coached younger Blaine at that time and just given some tools, I would have told younger Blaine, it would be helpful for you to name the season that you're in and then to ask God to highlight his priorities for you in terms of the season that you're in if you're in a new country new marriage new job i would not go actually try to be a part of a church plant right now because a church plant is its own animal that requires a certain amount of energy i would you know tell you find a place where you can worship encounter jesus but i wouldn't actually concern yourself with building A local gathering right now, just because it's not your season. But instead, I interpreted it as, well, maybe I don't like this local gathering thing. And this is really painful, and I have not seen enough of the life of the church to be able to name what I'm experiencing. So, all I feel is really frustrated when we began, you know, a multi-year hiatus from Essentially, any kind of gathering.
0: There's so much sage wisdom in what you just said. I love that. Many years ago, you and I were sitting in our in your car, and we were both having a very difficult time with our marriages. And you shared that um, one of the more mature, older men in your life had recently asked you the question of how long you had been married. You answered, I forget what it was—three years, four years. And he said, oh, yeah, well, wait until you hit 10 years. That's when marriages kind of hit their stride. And uh, when he mentioned that to me, I was really angry. I wanted to punch you just because <laughs> <laughs> it requires so much patience to, to, to have that zoomed out, um, to play the long game and have that zoomed out perspective on one's current sufferings. It can feel that way in the church, and so I think that giving people permission And context for whatever stage of life they are in a gathering and their personal presence in the church at large and their personal presence in a particular community, Um, if they've launched a house church or whatever it is, whatever stage they're in there, there are stages to relational growth, experiencing those beautiful moments of deep intimacy and showing up for each other and, oh, this is what the church should be like uh it can take time and it doesn't that doesn't mean there aren't things that can happen that require you to leave a place that is uh destructive and damaging and so on but people are sinful people take time to mature especially in deep relationships all good things relationally require long suffering and some deeper commitment so just as marriage can be quite difficult and yet bears fruit uh, in perseverance th- through the hard times, church is the same way something else i 'm hearing from your story is how important it is to have mature, proven sage leaders or oversight or mentorship, whatever you want to call it, and these people must have very high gospel i q and very high relational i q uh, and so if if you 're you know out there trying to start a house church, you're you're gathering people into your home. That's beautiful. I can't encourage you enough to pray that God would send those people into your life to keep your eye out for them. Because having those people that can say like, oh, that's normal. Here's here's what I see. Here's where you are in the story. Uh, I don't know. Our church wouldn't exist actually without those people. That is a vital point.
1: What you trigger for me is... Another thing that my story reveals is the need to have uh, qualified oversight and good catechesis that begins very quickly.
0: Cause the f- is this like a, a recent lesson for you? Is this
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is that in my story, I was the person who I now lovingly watch out for. Someone with a lot of perceived maturity, but no, but very little discipleship, very little catechizing, very little experience. So, you know, I'm a great case study of, did I have a deep life with Jesus? Yes, I did. Did I love the scriptures? Yes, I did. Did I know, did I have a good discipleship framework? No, I did not. I did not know that, but I had very, very little framework anchored in the scriptures, anchored in the way of Jesus to articulate how people change. Could Mm -hmm. I describe the life of the church? No, I could not. And so it's, again, there are a lot of things that are easy to mistake for maturity, especially in your own life. So here this is like repentance, but in like enjoying the presence of God is not the same thing as maturity. Mm. And seeing miracles, hearing the voice of God is not the same thing as maturity. Even being able to articulate the gospel in an accurate and a lovely way is not the same thing as maturity. What maturity relies on is time and the posture of the student, and humility. I like to tell people that in ecosystems management, you can make an ecosystem fruitful immediately. You just need the right conditions. The only way to make an ecosystem resilient is time, and there's, there's absolutely no shortcut. You cannot make a tree put down roots faster than it naturally will. And so if you get your ground right and your mulch right and your infiltration swales right. You can make an apple tree produce on year one, but it'll still die in a windstorm. That was kind of how I'd describe the, the me person, young, really passionate, high love for Jesus, but not very much study, not very much discipline, not very much humility, not very much time. I had a fruitful life with God but frankly, not a very resilient relational attachment to people, not a very resilient attachment to the local gathering.
0: This one item, if we could quantify this, I would estimate that something like half of the brokenness and the relational destruction and the the burnout and the horror stories of people leaving a church gathering with tons of trauma I feel like half of this, at least, if not much more, would just go away if we learned. Now, of course, the point isn't that church should not be a struggle or that bad things don't happen within it, but that it's the context of people who are in Christ and have this economy of forgiveness and restoration so that when we hurt each other, there's something can be done. There's the gospel. Nonetheless, uh, the church doesn't have to be as traumatizing as it is for so many people and especially are often leaders. And I think that if we changed our, our qualifications from impressiveness and from academic credentials to to maturity and discipleship and provenness and humble, quiet, day in, day out rule of life that's slowly bearing fruit, and people that know how to confess their sins and repent. And instead of people being leaders because they want to be leaders or because they got a degree, Or because they're, you know, they have uh, charisma. Um, Instead, oh, you should be a leader because you have been serving for so long and everyone looks to you as a leader because in the church, the leader is the lowest of all. If we banished the term servant leadership and just used the term servanthood, and if we started calling deacons servants and all the things, uh, I think the church would be so much healthier. My own experience is is similar in leading various gatherings from a pretty young age, uh, and something I'm really grateful for is the grace that our church has had over the years as I've worked out, and I still have a very long way to go, but as I've worked out my own salvation in the context of leading, uh, and just leading poorly, failing, um, missing so many opportunities, I get emotional thinking about this, like wishing I was so much better of a leader, of a servant in our household, but uh, also being able to celebrate fruit, growth, change over the years. So even when it's not perfect and you don't come to leadership with all the maturity that leadership requires, it's wonderful to be in a place where people can forgive, can prophetically see who, who you are according to Christ, not the flesh. And where you can work that out. But it it nevertheless requires a healthy relational context, oversight, more mature people that can uh, guide you and and cultivate you and be part of the the pruning process over the years. Years, not months, and not like three or four years of education. (laughs) That's
1: so good. Yeah, when you said, like, we could, by doing these things, we could prevent so much harm in the church. I just think it's true. Something that that pinged for me was the need to be connected with the church across time and space. Mm. And some of this is solved once you've embraced the posture of the student, once you've embraced the posture of humility, you understand that to get good at something, you have to do it, but that the way you do it determines whether or not you'll eventually get good. And if you do it with humility, servanthood, curiosity, seek to be a student of the thing, you are on a good trajectory. I was thinking how much harm could be prevented in churches by having a handle on something like stage theory. Because especially in the West, we live in an adolescent culture and many gatherings are fairly adolescent. I was definitely, and hopefully at least a little bit lesser now, but in the stages that I'm describing, in what could neatly be defined, adolescent spirituality, stage one in St. John of the Cross's stage theory. And if someone had simply said that, here's the kind of energies that you'll experience in your 20s in life with God. When you kind of hit the 30s, the script is going to flip, and here are the kind of forces you might encounter. And if we had churches who just more of them, who could reach into the traditions of the people of God and clearly name where you're going, right? The way, that glorious vision of a future with God. And you could define the pracy, the how, the And how do we think that we get there and could define an authority? Here's how we arbitrate disagreements and anchor ourselves to the scriptures and the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the consensus of saints across time. Like that, all of that architecture comes out of experience. And the missing gray hairs and the missing long term students of the way of Jesus are certainly one of the challenges that a young gathering is going to face. Mm. It's, I think it's productive to name it not as like a failure of the church in our age or not as something that's wrong, but let's say, let's just call it a difficulty. So you're starting to gather, great. There's a lot to know. Sages are really helpful. A sage is someone who has followed Jesus for a long time. Ask Jesus to bring them because unfortunately, there are just never going to be that many available. But Jesus can provide for you along the way and can bring in the voices who can name what you're experiencing, kind of describe the territory ahead, and ground the intrinsically unsteady young gathering.
0: Mm, it's good. Something very simple and straightforward to say about stage three and mature leadership as we've mentioned before in this mini church series that the church is family and should be regarded according to a family economy, family rules, and not business. And so part of what we're talking about here is the church needs mothers and fathers. A family doesn't work very well when it's the teenagers and the toddlers and so on, um, all trying to figure it out. Which is not to infantilize the people who are not, who don't see themselves as mothers and fathers in the church, just like you don't infantilize the 18-year-old son or daughter in the family and so on, right? But it's just in a very, it's essential to see ourselves as part of a family economy. Something else I want to put out that's just on my heart as you're talking is Blaine and I have a heart for encouraging the church. So if you, particularly if you are um, a listener and are part of launching House Church, uh, especially House Churches, where I think we'd encourage any kind of church, but we love House Churches to be honest. And so if you uh, really, I'll, I'll say it this way, if you're part of the church and a church leader or someone you know, doing that work and need encouragement or just want to talk through the issues or whatever... Feel free to email us, go to, go to the website, figure out how to contact us, and uh, yeah, at the very least, we could set up a, a Zoom call or something and perhaps even come out and visit you just to be an encouragement. We are not. We don't uh, position ourselves as uh, any, anything other than we are, which is crap. I was about to say middle-aged because I'm going to turn 40 next year. Holy my gosh. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> we're guys in our 30s who love the church, and that's pretty much all. I'm going to say to like sort of give our qualifications. But yeah, we, we really love visiting with people that love the church and just want to be encouraged. That's good. If I were to zoom
1: in now on my season, I realize I'm skipping how I discovered our gathering here in Colorado Springs and what that has been like. I'll just say trying to actually do it trying to incarnate the way of Jesus in my time, has been really hard and really productive. It's also been amazing. Like parenting, it's easy to quantify the cost. You don't sleep anymore. It's hard to quantify the glory of you know, smelling your infant's skin and mm. playing with your son and daughter, if you're me, and getting the wonder back of helicopters going overhead. And that stuff is very hard to describe. Actually, joy is always harder to describe than difficulty. Uh, The church is like that, where it's easy to quantify the cost. It's harder to describe how it feels to be having cigars and catching up with men who I've done almost 10 years of life with now and enjoying the warmth of the fire, watching the slow change in people's lives. Something that's helpful if you are on either side of one of the transitions in early discipleship to general discipleship, adolescence to beginning into maturity, is that young people think being ejected from the home until having formed your own home learn a lot it's god's design to teach them primarily through success and it's like a game of hot and cold into yes do that yes you are a great therapist or yes you actually you are good with your hands you're a craftsman keep going and it can be a way into differentiating between the many options that confront a person there's a fairly uniform agreement inside the old teachers that I've been reading, and these are the Therese's and the St. John's, that when you transition, now you have, you have come home. Failure will be your teacher, not success. Or Emily always corrects me when I say this. She says, no, 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 failure's not your teacher. Jesus will teach you through your failures. <laughs> and I'm like, that is a very important clarification, and I agree. In the beginning, Jesus teaches a person a lot through their successes. Success does a lot for a young person. And just think of your initial experiences of rapture and worship with God. Those are invaluable to me. Or seeing the Holy Spirit move or watching the lights come on for someone as you explain some dimension of the gospel they hadn't noticed. Those are like treasures in every person's life with God. And if you don't have them yet, he can still give them to you. But I will definitely say in the season that I am in, Jesus is mostly teaching me, mostly making me a more loving, joyful, grateful, enjoyable person by failing. And the amazing thing is, I don't feel like Jesus is architecting the failures at all. He's just letting some of the disordered loves, some of the brokenness, some of the sin in my own nature just do its thing. And then walk with me to pick up the pieces. So in this past season, I said a couple episodes ago, man, I've never wanted to quit more than right now. Mm -hmm. And what's driving that is beginning to lead, calling a group of people together to share life in the season. And by doing that, and by engaging their questions and watching their conflicts and being in the middle of their conflicts, realizing, man, I have no idea where I'm trying to take you. Or how I think we're going to get there. Or why I think that will work. Or what is happening to you. And why is the fruit of my leadership so much chaos? That's been a very, very fruitful question. Many times in the past couple of years, in my private times with Jesus, I've been like, Oh, Jesus. I just don't know if I can keep going low. <laughs> like. This work of being humble is really painful. The reason to stick with it is that it's so joyful. Uh, Because I can also say that in the past two years of learning a disciplined approach to following Jesus and beginning to flesh out the absent architecture of how that gets done, I've also... Had more spontaneous gratitude than at any other season in my life, and like more moments of joy, more moments of peace. So, the joy to be had there, the worthiness of life with God is the motivating power. The mechanism right now is failing in life with people and letting a failure be the first crumb in a breadcrumb trail on the way to something in need of the address of Jesus, whether it's healing or deliverance or repentance or just discipline, sanctification. But the experience of the failure is the kind of the repeated signal, like metal detector signal, like, dig here, look here. There's something to discover.
0: Whether or not you are part of the church and signing up for that, journey that you just described, a very significant portion of life will be suffering regardless. Life outside of the church is suffering, life in the church is suffering. The, the difference is if you are outside of the church, and at least in the Western context, living according to the capital L liberal vision of humanity, the liberal or secular humanist uh, project Your suffering happens often in solitude, in loneliness, in simply not knowing God and not being on the path of theosis is its own suffering. A life robbed of the fruit of that transformational suffering that you're describing is its own suffering. And the beauty of life in the church is that you are seen, that you are doing life on life, that um, that the sparks are flying at times the transformation of suffering that happens in the church is so beautiful, and the fruit is, is transcendent. We actually get to experience the true, the good, and the beautiful. We get to experience the very life and person of God in each other. And that's my biggest uh, like, like reason to do life this way. Um, why would you live life this way? So many times, other people who observe my life make comments like man you you spend a lot of time with your church like you you guys put a lot of time into this and i feel like those comments often miss the point which is like this is my life this is a way of life this is the form of my life you put a lot of time into whatever you put a lot of time into we're all burning down 24 hours a day heading towards our death and judgment at resurrection regardless we're all suffering regardless but Life in the church is where, is where it happens, where you actually experience the divine and become the kind of person that can look like God such that you're nearly indistinguishable and can steward creation into eternity, where you can become like a God. And if that does, doesn't make sense to you, I don't know, go back and listen to the whole story of God series here. Um, this idea that uh, God became man so that man could become God's. Theosis, this is what salvation is. And so what I hear you saying, Blaine, is like, you're experiencing salvation in the church, and the church is where you experience salvation. To a significant degree, if you are separated from her, the bride, the church, you're not experiencing salvation. And this formation is where it happens. And again, the same thing is can be said of marriage, where so much of marriage is dying to self, is... You you've invited another person to be there all the time, and to witness your your lowest moments, but also the fruit of marriage. Lord willing, is children and in, in these like transcendent moments of beauty and, and intimacy and being cared for when you're sick and all the things. So, this is life. Being together in family context, and it's so much more than a program than. Uh, than a nonprofit business that offers programmatic services to the community, though that is beautiful and God uses that so much. This deeper, like we share our lives together. We we share our economies. My my personal belongings aren't just my personal belongings. They're gifts that I steward and distribute to the household as I'm led. And my life isn't my own life. It takes so much time to to, to actually see it that way and to more so, to live it out and to have your consciousness changed, because we're so formed by uh, Western liberal democratic capitalism, or by whatever you, you know your context is, and that isn't the same thing. This is an entirely different way of being uh, and so we've sa- we, we have said before in this podcast that Jesus, when he is resurrected and when his spirit uh, is you know comes down in Pentecost, uh, when the church is established a new kind of humanity comes into existence, and when you come into the church, you're not that new kind of humanity, at least in a big portion of your, your lived-out life. You are in the spiritual, spiritually resurrected sense as soon as you become a Christian, but it's in the context of life-on-life life, church together that uh, you actually slowly but surely throughout the rest of your life, Lord willing, uh, experience what it's like to be a new kind of human being.
1: That was epic. I almost want that to be a mic drop, but I'm not sure much you have. I kind of want to give like one more prompt, but it just so happens that I have a really easy answer to this, which is, all right, now give me one more illustrative story. It's about life right now, kind of on any level, but it has to be um, something that's in your car or a message on your phone, or, so, or, or something you, you plan to do this weekend. Um, so, let me give you mine. Anthony, what am I wearing on my wrist?
0: You are wearing a
1: prayer bracelet. Why am I wearing this prayer bracelet? Because, well. Well, let me say, why do I have this prayer b- bracelet? Which
0: Aristotelian form of causation do we want to talk about here?
1: I want to know where, where I, I got this. Because I your life so much.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> you
1: gave this to me. I was, I told you before the show, I was just listening to uh, an interview with the Atomic Habits guy, James Clear. And when I read Atomic Habits, I went, this is a rule of life book for secular people. <laughs> but because James Clear has been in, appointed with the image of God and reveals actually still a great deal of the glory of God, there's so much in that book that's so good. And he has this observation where he says, if you want to change, Get into a community where your desired behavior is the norm because we are formed socially. Uh, one of the things that I would say about life together is the work of hanging in there with people who are living in the same direction. One of the rules in church is those who stay grow, full stop. Full stop. That's how you grow, you stay. Not saying there are never times to leave or opening that can of worms at all. Just saying that one of the golden rules of life and community is that if you want to grow, you have to stay. Now, what I would say about this prayer bracelet that is such a wonderful tool is there are... Man, I'm actually holding the other can of worms. I'm just going to crack it. (laughs) Just let one out, which is there are things to look for, like in the local gathering or even more than to look for, to devote yourself in prayer for, to ask God for, to partner with the Holy Spirit for. Mm. And they tend to be the answers to those big questions of like, where are you going? Are you able to, is this church and its leadership able to articulate from their own experience God's design for humanity and his design for the church, anchored in the scripture, anchored in the traditions of the church, revealed by the Holy Spirit. Do you know why you're doing this? And Because you are casually saying these things like theosis and becoming gods. And sorry, Mormons, that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) We're talking about the Edenic vision back again. And can the church, especially the church leadership, articulate, a real way to get there, like a working theory of spiritual transformation, of change. And is that anchored in the scriptures? Is that anchored in the traditions of the church? Is that revealed by the Holy Spirit? And then do you have some sense of shared authority, like what you appeal to in order to know, which should be those three things that I keep saying, the testimony of the scriptures, the consensus of the saints across time and the traditions of the church. And then the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And as you look for those things and throw in with a gathering where what you want to take on the nature of Christ, to join him in his project is the norm, well, then you get the wonderful benefit of living in a culture that is increasingly modeled on Jesus. And one of those things for me is that, you know, I would never otherwise have acquired a prayer bracelet of any kind. But can I tell you how much I love using this thing when I'll drive in the car Mm -hmm. and then slip it off my wrist and start on the cross and then I'll either do like a written prayer from the scriptures. I might do the Jesus prayer or a different breath prayer or I'll just ask the Holy Spirit, what should I give my attention to right now? Like what's a short prayer that I should lean into? And then I'll go all the way around praying that prayer, praying that prayer, forming, like, pointing my desires in the direction of Jesus, shaping my imagination in the way of Jesus. And just because I happen to live life in a community that reflects all the various attributes of following Jesus.
0: Hmm. I love that. As a bonus, I will include a link in the show notes to Where you can get the particular prayer bracelets that many people in our community use. I spent a lot of time when I just when I realized I need I want that um, finding a a good one, (laughs) and it's cheesy because you know it's just some wooden beads on a stretchy band. But uh, this one is cool because it's made by Orthodox. I don't know if monks is the right word, but I want to say it's a monastery somewhere in New Mexico. So when you buy these, you're helping them build their new monastery, I think it is. Is
1: there a new thing? Uh, I think also, Anthony, that you should include, promise to include in the show notes on the website, a little paragraph on what to do with a prayer bracelet. Yeah,
0: I actually made a card for, the, for our church leaders when we gave those out as, as gifts, so I'll, I'll put that, I think it's a PDF of just a bunch of breath prayers that you can pray with each bead of the bracelet and how to, how to go about it. Pro tip, these do not do very well getting wet. So, oh, really? Yeah. I haven't had any issues. I have broken at least two or three, but I'm I'm always amazed at how resilient they are. Um to answer your question, I I don't know what's in my car, but um but I looking at my calendar what comes to mind is I'll start with this amazing metaphor that HP Pasley, one of the early church leaders just Christian leaders who is Part of the genealogy of our church, he has this saying. I'm not sure if he came up with it, but this picture of the church, you know, when Jesus says, "I'll make you uh, fishers of men," the the way they fished back then, and this is just a a an image, right? The way they fished back then was with nets, and for the church, the way that we fish and fishing is evangelizing and bringing more people into the family of God is. In nets and not with individuals casting out lines. So, in the net is our network of relationship, is our connectedness. And that's so that when we're inviting people into the church, we're not one to one asking them to come just propositionally assent to some you know, believer's prayer, but we're actually inviting them into this network, this connected web of relationships. The reason that picture comes to mind. Is I was just looking at my calendar in, in response to your prompt. And last Sunday, my neighbor across the street who doesn't know Jesus, my house church has been in a season of uh, each person getting the chance to, to share their story from anywhere from like half an hour to an hour. It's a sacred practice, kind of a sacramental thing. You're getting to receive someone's story, witness them, respond, pray, prophesy over them. And my neighbor who Doesn't know Jesus, but also does because she knows us, and she's been in so many contexts where she gets to see Jesus embodied in our gathering, um, in our community. She she wants God so much, and uh, there's still a a chasm to cross there. And yet, also, she's just in. She's already, in, in many ways, in it because she's been caught up in our net of relationships, not in some predatory way, but in a way that honors who she is in her story. So she recently came as she's been listening to some of the stories being told, which is a beautiful thing. And she came and shared her story and was very straightforward. I'm not a Christian, but she shared her kind of spiritual journey and so on. And I'm so grateful that my wife and kids and I are not the only ones trying to show my neighbor across the street what it's like to be a Christian or, or, or what the invitation is. We couldn't do it by ourselves. It's not come be in our nuclear family. It's come be in our large family that, that we call kindred, our church. And this Sunday, a couple of days from this recording, her daughter, is, who just recently became a Christian, will come and share her story, and she will get to hear her own daughter's story in this context. So my, my main response is, I love that the church is not me, that my salvation is not just me and Jesus, but it is a connectedness. It is a, like, I experience God in relationship. Uh, Bonhoeffer and his book, Life Together, which some, somehow I don't think we've mentioned in, in this church mini series yet, but you must read. I think we've mentioned it many times on the podcast, at least. He says, the Jesus in my brother is stronger than the Jesus in me. And as a, as a kid, when I first read that book, I was like, uh, that sounds stupid, but it's actually beautiful and and uh, makes a lot of sense that when I'm struggling with weakness and doubt, frailty, unbelief, uh, Jesus always shows up to me in, embodied in the people I do life with. All right, so as we wrap up this three-part conversation on the church, Blaine, What is the church again? What are we talking about?
1: The church is the gathering, the people of God following the Lamb into the new creation. And those people take the life form of a family, not as a cute metaphor, but because family is a part of God's architecture for the universe. It's revealed in the life of the Trinity itself. And the people of God take the form of a household, an economic structure, shaped by and ruled over by Jesus himself, who is the head. And the church, all together, reflecting the glory of God, is the new humanity restored by Jesus to be the bride of Christ, God's covenant partner, creating with him into eternity. It's good. Anthony, what is the church?
0: <laughs> the church is, first off, I'll say check out Romans 16 and see if you can find the five levels of scope of the church. We've, we keep using the word fractal. There are different levels of zoom. So go to Romans 16 and see if you can find the five different levels or like levels of zoom for the church. I'll say they range from the church is identified by a particular household of believers, an ethnic church, a church in a, in a region, all the way to the church universal. The church is the prophetic inbreaking of the coming age. The church, especially when she's doing well, is a picture of the age to come that is already now. And the church is the people who have seen the apocalypse of Christ, are learning what it means, and are responding by changing their entire lives in discipleship to Jesus.
1: Mount Vigil is discipleship for the end of an age. We are looking to resource the people of God to thrive in a significant time. If you want to know more about Mount Vigil, you can go to mountvigil.com or you are welcome to subscribe to the newsletter to hear from us on occasion. Mount Vigil is a crowdfunded project. If you would like to support this work, you can also go to mountvigil.org donate. In the meantime, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace.
0: My Savior is coming back on me. my Jesus is coming back on me. Oh, dear, dear, dear.